0: Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, It is currently Tuesday, November 3rd, which is election day in the United States. As a point of personal privilege, since this is my episode, I'm urging you and begging you for the love of everything that you hold dear to get out there and vote today. Your mileage may vary based on the state that you're in, but in most places, if you are in line when the polls close, you must be allowed to vote. Please stay in line and make your voice heard. Thank you. I'm with the show. I'm so pleased to report that there is no sexual violence towards a woman in this movie. Woo! (laughs) Hey, welcome back to another episode of Replaying Favorites, the podcast where two friends decide to destroy their friendship by showing each other their favorite films for the other one to crap all over.
1: I would like to point out that we are still friends right now.
0: Are we? Okay, great. I'm really glad to know that, because my name's Brie Callahan. I'm Chris Kelly. And apparently we are still friends, which is great. So th- <laughs> This week, we're going to test the boundaries of that friendship by introducing a little bit of Aaron Sorkin to it by watching A Few Good Men, the 1992 American legal drama directed by Rob Reiner. It stars Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, and Demi Moore. It's got a little side of Kevin Bacon. I'm genuinely sorry that I said that, but we're going to leave it in. <laughs> um, it's... <laughs> It also has Kevin Pollack, Kiva Gooding Jr., JT Walsh, Kiefer Sutherland. Also has a tiny baby Noah Wiley from pre-ER days, I believe. Huh, Chris, what do you know about A Few Good Men?
1: Literally all I know is that I cannot handle the truth. I know that the movie was a big deal. It was around a lot, obviously. It spawned a catchphrase. Catchphrase is the wrong word. It has a famous line. Um, it had big stars in it. It's a movie that I have thought about watching many times because it's obviously a big deal, but I've just never been in, like, the right mood to watch a movie that I believe is about sexual assault in the military.
0: Uh, not at all. Okay. I'm so pleased to be able to deliver that information to you. There is a very off-color joke amongst several by Jack Nicholson about Demi Moore blowing Tom Cruise, but aside from that, it's about, uh, murder.
1: Okay, because I know that it's about a military trial. Yes. But so much media about criminal proceedings in the military is about sexual assault, and maybe I've just seen one too many episodes of SVU, but I just assumed that something had gone very wrong for Demi Moore.
0: Again, I believe it wildly fails the Bechtel test, as I don't believe she interacts with any other women at all in the movie. I don't think there's another woman with a speaking role in it.
1: We are eventually going to have to watch a movie that has women in it.
0: <laughs> then we're going to have to go back and reinvent America, aren't we? Because
1: that is not a thing
0: that can happen. And we're certainly not going to do it watching a fucking Aaron Sorkin movie. That being said, a lot of good men here, at least a few. Oh, wow. I do want to apologize, and I'd like to end the podcast here um, forever. I take it back. We're not going to quit. You've always wanted to watch A Few Good Men, and now I'm going to force you to do it. So after the break, we will be back after you've done it.
1: I I saluted, which is silent. Did you
0: salute? Did you salute because we're watching a movie about the military? You just saluted. I don't know.
1: I don't know. We're cutting that out.
0: (laughs) You know it's a podcast, and you have to make a sound,
1: right? It's fine. You said goodbye. We're done. I'm pausing. We're done.
0: And we'll see you in a minute. Okay, we are back from the break, and we have successfully, I believe, both watched A Few Good Men. It had a production budget of about 33 or 40 million. It grossed 141 million in the U.S. and worldwide, 243 million dollars in 1992 dollars. It is based on a 1988 play written by Aaron Sorkin with additional writing from William Goodman, who also wrote *The Princess Bride*, oh. uh, which was also directed by Rob Reiner, as this movie was. Aaron Sorkin was only 27 when he sold this. Uh, he was really young. He sold it for like six figures, and in fact, it sold before it ever even opened on Broadway. The original play starred Tom Hulse, who is everybody's favorite Amadeus, I would have loved to have seen him play this role.
1: Yeah, I am very interested in that.
0: So A Few Good Men got four Academy Award nominations, including Reiner's only nomination for Best Picture. So aside from Cruz, who is definitely the biggest star of this piece, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore, uh, Kevin Bacon, all of them would have been incredibly large stars at the time. I think Kiefer Sutherland had probably just come off Lost Boys. So he was definitely a known entity as well. Basically, it was the most success Rob Reiner ever had. And it was the m- most success that a lot of these actors had in this time period.
1: I want to start talking about Tom Cruise just because he... Okay is both the backbone of this film and perhaps the most problematic entity in retrospect. Like, it's tough to watch a Tom Cruise vehicle without thinking about the Tom Cruise that we know today. It's not that he's a bad actor. He is even a good actor. I would not say that he is the strongest member of this cast by a long shot, but he brings a a charm and a star quality, and certainly he was a pretty rip-roaring big deal, so I get it. But like, it's tough to watch this now and not think about how that is the role that I would recast if I had to recast one.
0: I think this is another case where it would be interesting to see this movie for the first time because I've seen this movie so many times with Tom Cruise in that role that it's hard for me to imagine casting someone else in it. Like, even just thinking about having Tom Hulse in the role, I was like would be interesting. I wonder how Kathy would be different. He has some really excellent moments, but he also has some moments where he struggles. I would also like to posit that I think that Jack Nicholson has some trouble, especially in the, the first of his three scenes, I think, where he really seems to struggle with Sorkin's dialogue. And I think Tom Cruise is a little bit more successful with it.
1: Interesting. I was bought into Jack Nicholson from the get go. I thought that his performance was just pitch perfect. I had no notes, so I
0: think obviously the final scene where he's on the stand remains as thrilling as it was when you saw it for the when I saw it for the first time. But I think the initial scene where he's in the office with Markinson and with Kiefer Sutherland's character, there are some longer sentences where I really feel like the pacing is just not really working for him. There's a perfect example for me is Boslerman's Romeo and Juliet. I thought for years that Leonardo DiCaprio was just the worst actor in the whole world because I'd only seen him in that movie, and he just can't speak Shakespeare. And in the first scene with Jack Nicholson, he's so bombastic. I think he is most successful in his two scenes where he's playing against Cruz, who I think is also at this sort of heightened reality level, whereas J.T. Walsh, who plays Markinson, is a very sort of staid actor, so Jack Nicholson looks a little too keyed up by contrast for me.
1: I guess I interpreted that as a very intentional move because he is the big bad of this movie. To me, I got a real reality out of seeing two people who are in positions of power themselves made to feel insignificant in the presence of this man who sort of thinks of himself in a godlike way. like He is holding court, even though there's no court to hold. You can see the the ego and the self-importance in that performance.
0: I think when I was younger watching this movie, I got the sense that Markinson and Jessup were friends and that then they have this sort of falling out. But watching it even most recently last night is that like they aren't close. I always kind of got the sense that Markinson was really betraying someone that he loved, but I think it's not actually the case. And so that maybe also kind of changes the way the scene plays out to my mind because I always just thought like they were buddies and like, why is Jessup big dicking his friend?
1: We talked, I believe off the record about how much you love J.T. Walsh. And it's funny because, like you said, his performance is so underplayed. He's really, really subtle in a movie that is full of a lot of operatic heights. But you can feel his inner guilt before he even gives a hint of it in dialogue or action. There's just something, a dog with his tail between his legs, about his being.
0: That's what I love about him. He's, well, A, he's one of those guys who you're like, I think I've seen that guy before. And the reason that is, is because he only acted for 15 years. He he died in 1998 and he started in 1983, but he did 53 movies Jesus. in 15 years. He's in a ton of stuff. He often plays a bad guy because I think he's just kind of got that face and that physicality. But he's one of those actors who's doing a lot of showing rather than emoting you know and he kind of gives you the inkling even in that initial scene that like what they say that they're gonna do seems bad and the fact that he's uncomfortable with it means that it's like very very bad
1: one of my initial concerns with this movie was that at the outset it does not seem that we are meant to like anyone to whom we are introduced.
0: <laughs> I think that's extremely true.
1: We are given Tom Cruise, who is an asshole. The two accused who... Murdered someone. Yeah, we are never really on their side. To me more, who I think actually does play a likable character, but who is painted as the shrew. Of course. You have to have one woman and she has to be the shrew that you eventually want to fuck. Right. And then the rest of the military is just the bad guy.
0: Yeah, it's really not clear to me if this movie and also the play and also Aaron Sorkin, if they like the military or not, because you get a lot of shots in the film of people treating other people in the military quite poorly. But then the movie also opens with Uh, Phi Semper, which is the song of the Marines, and then they also have that incredibly long opening of the drill team, which is very strange because the movie opens with this grisly murder done by two Marines, and then it immediately switches to this sort of, isn't America great and here are some things about the military that you'll love in an opening that I think goes on way too long.
1: And I had a similar, not to skip around to the end, but we're going to skip around. I had a real question about how I was supposed to interpret the final moment of one of the accused acknowledging Tom Cruise as an officer and, like, saluting him, which I think is supposed to show the growth that Tom Cruise has given and the respect that he has earned. But it's like, we've gone a long way to show that all of this militarism has driven someone to literal murder. And then we're like, but also, oh, the respect. It felt bad.
0: I actually really disagree that we are not supposed to like Dawson and Downey, who are two actors who I always refer to as Dawson and Downey anytime I see them turn up in something else. But I would actually like to posit that Dawson is the heart of the movie and that this entire movie is about Tom Cruise attempting to earn Dawson's respect.
1: I was willing to be sympathetic toward them for a little bit. I mean, again, we start out with them murdering someone, so that's a hard sell. But They do have sort of a hangdog quality, and there is the general sense given that there is a deeper complication to this and that their outright guilt should not be presumed. And so you start to want to go along on that journey with them. But then Tom Cruise has his first meeting with Dawson, and it gets incredibly intense, and Dawson gives him the full fuck you and doesn't seem at all remorseful about what he's done. He sort of doubles down, like, what I did was absolutely right. And if you question that, then you are wrong. And I'm like, oh, well, then this guy's kind of a dick.
0: I think the movie only sees two characters, possibly Galloway, Demi Moore's character. But I think really that Sam and Dawson are the two people with, like, a very clear moral compass. Everyone else's moral compasses are flexible. I think the two questions that the movie really asks is sort of like, do you do something because it's right? Or do you do things because of honor? I think they're in tension with each other. Tom Cruise is sort of being pulled between those two poles.
1: I see what you're saying. I think that I, as a viewer, fell very clearly on one side of things. There was a lot of discussion about, well, maybe what they did didn't actually kill him. And I think that I was waiting at times for a reveal. The investigation into that ultimately goes nowhere. So I had the idea that there might be a way to more fully absolve them of guilt, but they still killed him.
0: I think sort of the moral quandary of the film is also like, these two guys were doing something that they didn't think would kill him. And it wouldn't have killed somebody else if they'd done it to Noah Wiley, who on the stand, like cheerfully and quite cutely is just like, yeah, I got tortured all the time. So this is sort of a a question of an unfortunate incident that happens, but then you also have to look at the broader culture of like, this is a group of people who routinely torture each other for minor infractions to uphold some sort of code. I think this movie probably plays very differently to different groups of people because I think there are some people who probably watch this movie and genuinely agree with Dawson. He was told to do this, so he did it. And this is not what he wanted to happen. And you get a lot of evidence later that he had protected Santiago from a number of other incidents where guys had wanted to beat up Santiago for doing, you know, stuff that was beyond Santiago's control. Then there are people like the two of us who I think look at what those guys did. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter. Like you were picking on someone who was smaller than you. And that's ultimately the conclusion that Dawson comes to at the very end when Downey says like, but we didn't do anything wrong. And he's like, yeah, but we did.
1: I will say those final lines are... A uh, hair on the nose. We could have done one more draft to like bump the subtlety on that.
0: The final five minutes is so over the top. Like it has Jack Nicholson just losing his mind and then it gets quiet. And then Tom Cruise says, you son of a bitch the witness is excused. Aaron's just always got to be like a little too cute. I don't know what the answer to that outburst that Jack Nicholson does is, but like it's such a little bow on it. Dawson's whole thing and the music is swelling. Like the fact that Kathy does not turn and say for a second time, so this is what the inside of a courtroom looks like is really, I think, as much restraint as Aaron could muster.
1: This movie is packed to the gills with what I'm going to refer to as straight boy shade. This is 100%... <laughs> what drag queens would do to each other well, but this is... As good as Aaron Sorkin can make his quippy insults. It's just
0: too much. Like either go for the cutting remark or let it go, but you can't do both. Um, can we actually step back and talk about the music for a little bit? Because
1: <laughs> Oh, sure. I have notes.
0: <laughs> the score is so over the top. It's funny because it's one of those movies that as soon as you hear any part of the soundtrack, you know what movie you're watching because there's really only about two pieces of music in the entire thing. There's the boo-do-do-do. And that music happens anytime there's a clue. (laughs) When they go to Santiago's room, when Markinson shows up, it's a very interesting choice, especially because there's almost no music over most of the scenes in the film.
1: I had to wonder if there was maybe an incredibly limited budget for the music, because in addition to there being very few pieces of score, it is clearly all played on one Casio keyboard. <laughs> I know. It's also the fact that it's a synth. The guy had been like,
0: oh, I hear what they're doing in Phantom of the Opera. I'd like to replicate that in a in a feature film. They did, however, spend the money to license two pieces of blues music that they play when Tom Cruise meets his black friend both times. There is no other popular music except for Hound Dog and another blues track that play both times as he drives up to interact with Luther. I have no explanation for that other than racism. I don't get it.
1: I could not, for the life of me, figure out why Luther was in the film, because his dialogue is quite literally all- old hat phrases
0: don't worry he's not credited at the end of the movie even though he's one of the people who has lines people who have no lines in the movie are credited but he is not
1: i have questions about who is credited and who is not because in the very first scene that we see a second woman when demi moore meets the receptionist i was 100% certain that that receptionist is Michelle Forbes. She was in The Killing. She was in Battlestar Galactica. She is an amazing actor. I was certain that that is Michelle Forbes, who I love. The receptionist is credited nowhere. I spent longer than I should have googling combinations of Michelle Forbes and a few good men to no avail. (laughs) I remain certain that it is her Only from the very husky delivery of go right in, commander, they're expecting you.
0: (laughs) It is the closest thing to passing the Bechdel test that the movie has. What's interesting about this movie is actually the first person who speaks in this movie is Demi Moore. And the second person who she speaks to is that receptionist. And that is the last time two women will interact until (laughs) (laughs) until she interacts with Aunt Jenny. This movie can't even pass the Bechdel test Envisioning a conversation between Demi Moore and Aunt Jenny.
1: I have so much to say about the misuse of Demi Moore's character.
0: (sighs) Let's get into it, because it's wild. She's just all over the place.
1: Yeah, because as we stated, a woman needs to be the shrew. But then, because we only have one woman, and we need someone for Tom Cruise to date, she just has to take a hard left and ask him out
0: for some reason? Let's just go in order with Demi Moore's character. You first meet her, but she's sort of like a weird bumbler, like she's going to speak over herself a lot. She's set up as being overeager and annoying, but she's also super competent. The movie somehow stipulates that her tripping over her words to ask for a job that she really wants is super embarrassing. Like it's just a very small minor vocal flub.
1: Yeah, I was surprised that she went... And again, this is because we only have one woman character. She has to be all of the women. So she has to be the clumsy one, but also the one who's on top of everything, to the point that she becomes an annoyance and a nag. The movie positions her as a nag when she is justified in being like, hey, why not do your job?
0: Yeah, why not do what you were assigned to do? Like, She actually has a lot of the facts that wind up being very important for the conclusion of this film. She knows about the code red. She has put together a lot of the pieces that wind up solving this mystery.
1: I was also shocked to learn that she outranks him. Well,
0: of course, we learned that in the crassest way possible. (laughs) For what it's worth, it is not written as something that's like kind of funny or that the audience is supposed to agree with. Like It's definitely written for you to view Jack Nicholson as the worst guy of all time. However, what's so infantilizing about it is that like, while it's being delivered to her, she doesn't react to it at all. She just keeps going with asking her question, and it's very clear that it's not to get at Galloway. It's to get at Caffey, and the way to get to Caffey is to destroy a woman in front of him. Galloway is also asked to go get all the office supplies when they're setting up for their uh, courtroom presentation. Sam is asked to get the lamps, and lamps only. For some reason, he says he says to Joe, "Go get like these eight eight different office supplies." Sam, get some desk lamps.
1: Yes, but she couldn't understand a machine. That has to be given to a man. That plugs <laughs> a in. A lamp not for her. is a
0: machine. <laughs> but also, you'd get an office lamp at the office store where you go to get the legal pads. You wouldn't go to the lamp store. It's not like there's separate excursions. So like, let's divide and conquer on these responsibilities
1: point where he's supposed to be like taking charge. I'm like, this is (laughs) not a good use of your human resources. This is
0: exactly how low the bar is set is that I actually want to give Aaron Sorkin a little bit of credit for not just sending Joe on the excursion to procure the materials while the men talk like he sends Sam out too. And I appreciate that.
1: She remains, I think the MVP on this team. No one necessarily listens to her all the time for reasons that are beyond me. She still is looked at as though Her ideas will never be as good as Tom Cruise's, even though we've gone to great pains to establish that he's not trying.
0: I think what we're supposed to take away is that she's sort of the more workman type person who needs to work really hard to get the results, whereas Tom Cruise is just kind of a genius. Like, he goes to get his bat and he realizes that all of his clothes are in the closet and therefore Santiago's clothes were not in the closet. He's kind of got the inspiration and she's got the workman-like things to it. There are a couple really cute moments that I think that Demi does quite good work with this. In the first courtroom scene when the judge is introduced, she's first on her feet, like she jumps right up to attention. And I think it's a really cute use of her character that she is overeager and that she would be the one who's just like, okay, we gotta follow the rules. And that's why it's so frustrating sometimes when the movie then wants to turn her into like a weird cool girl and also annoying. And I don't know how Moore dealt with this role because she's being asked to do lots of different things throughout the movie. And it, it must have made it really hard to decide how to act out this role because Joe doesn't have a consistent personality.
1: The transition from her being annoying to, I guess, kind of their friend, and then a romantic interest for one scene and one scene only.
0: That's always kind of the question is like, are they going to fuck? Like at the end of the movie, because it's really not clear. All she does is smile at him and kind of leave. But this movie also kind of wants to make her like, a mother figure to, like, boost Kathy up. Like, she's always just talking about what a genius lawyer she thinks he is. I will say that this movie is spectacular in the sense that it is absolutely happy for every single character in the movie to just hammer Kathy right, left, and center about his daddy issues. Like, everyone goes in on him about it. Literally, like, people he barely knows are like, oh, that's not what your dad would say. Like, you let a dead lawyer trick you into this
1: courtroom. That is my main note about what should have been the Demi Moore role. I watched this and I was like, the obvious thing, and if her role had been played by a man this a million percent wouldn't have even been a question. She is an outranking officer who is a better lawyer than him, and any man would have been cast as his mentor.
0: Right. Instead, the entire purpose of Sam is to fulfill that role because they wanted to have Galloway be a woman.
1: She never helps him be better. She just tells him how good he is.
0: Yeah, she's just around while he improves himself. Or she's actively getting in the way. She has the whole scene where she strenuously objects. And it's like kind of a point of tension that they probably need to split up the courtroom scene, but it's so irritating. Like she's a very smart woman. She wouldn't just keep going in and saying I strenuously object. She is humiliated in that scene, having suffered a very public embarrassment in the courtroom. They don't even wait to see if the courtroom is cleared before Sam like goes in on her. Like I can't believe there weren't reporters there or something. And then her immediate reaction is to go to Kathy's house to ask him out.
1: Like, if you were going to cut a scene from this movie wholesale, asking him out and then going on the date, do not forward the plot. No impact on the plot. If Joe just showed up to work the next morning, it'd be fine. But no one will fix her hair. What is with Demi Moore's one bang?
0: Okay, so let's talk about Demi Moore's hair. I feel bad about this because I'm so petty. I have a lot of questions about how she gets in and out of that hat. <laughs> Like, she's got two real, like, ploofy things, like, wings happening on the side. And do you do you put the hat... Do you start with one, and then you, like, shove the hair underneath the other part of the hat while you put it down, and then you got to take the hat off? How do you achieve this?
1: I similarly was unsure of whether we were meant to interpret that her hair is naturally wavy and that all she does is, like, take two handfuls of gel, go straight back, and let it ride. Or if she has, in fact, carefully put each little wave in, which I think is what the hair team had to do, (laughs) even though we are meant to believe that this is a no-nonsense do that she, a military lawyer, would have barely put thought into. It definitely was the kind of thing where they wanted to suggest a short business-like do, but also have her remain girlfriend material, you know?
0: Man, the cut when they do, when Kathy says, and don't wear that perfume tomorrow, I find it distracting or whatever he says. And they suddenly cut to Demi Moore. She's wearing an off the shoulder top and she's like, why? Like she's, and then the music changes also. Like she's suddenly presented as a romantic interest. It's so dumb and gross and pointless.
1: While we're talking about Tom Cruise's co-stars, I will talk about what a petty asshole I am that I had to Google how tall they both were. I did the same thing.
0: (laughs) As Kevin Pollack and Tom Cruise are walking together for the first time, I was like, wait, how tall is Kevin Pollock?
1: That answer is five foot five. And what is Tom Cruise? Five seven? I believe he is publicly five eight, but everyone knows he's five seven. Demi Moore is also five five, but is consistently in a two-inch heel in this film, which is why she is never standing next to him in a wide shot. I noticed at first when he is playing baseball at the very beginning and she has to be like outside the fence yelling at him, which, granted, is a safety concern because he's playing baseball. In
0: fact, I think the only times that they are really standing right next to each other, aside from in the courtroom when she would be in heels, is in the more casual scenes at the house when she wouldn't be wearing heels because she's wearing civilian clothes.
1: The baseball thing also reminds me of another thing that Tom Cruise is a really prop-heavy actor. And I think some of that is the Sorkin-ness of it all. But just really early on, there's a lot of business with him having pads and pens and baseball bats and an apple and a bunch of shit he's got to juggle. Like, he's just always got something in his hand that he's got to be monkeying with. And I was like, you can calm it right down.
0: I want to shove that fucking apple right down his throat when he marches into a meeting with a superior officer just snacking on an apple. I will say, though, that this is one of the only movies that I can think of where Tom Cruise gets to be kind of funny. And while, to my mind, a lot of Kathy's little bon Rita's dickishness, like the, some of them are like legitimately actually funny. However, Tom Cruise struggles a little bit more with showing mirth. There's a scene specifically where Sam makes some crack to him, and Tom Cruise is supposed to laugh and then remember that they should talk about something about Kendrick. And you can actually see the gears turning in his head. Like Sam says the funny line. Tom Cruise starts laughing. He pauses, holds, turns, and then says the line about Kendrick.
1: I actually also noticed he was terrible at playing drunk.
0: Oh my God. The drunk scene is so bad. There's a lot of things he does well in this movie. The drunk scene is awful, except for the way he says, perjury. <laughs> like,
1: pretty amazing. His... Jack Nicholson impersonation later is 50-50, but during the I have had too much Jack Daniels scene, his Jim Carrey impersonation is dead on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. Half of that monologue is good, and the other half is bargain basement. There's also a really interesting thing that happens right after that moment. They chase Demi Moore down in the street, and Tom Cruise is now driving, and Sam's in the car! Why not have Sam drive?
1: (laughs) I had that exact question. I was like, I know that she can't have walked that far. Like, they're only going down the block. But even so. And he also sobers
0: up instantaneously. It's completely ridiculous.
1: On average, I think that Tom
0: Cruise is actually very charming in this film. There is a sort, sort of roguishness that I with great regret, must tell you that I respond to as a straight woman because it's like bred into me. While he is charming, some of the things that Aaron Sorkin thinks are charming are not charming. Like the aforementioned apple scene is just deeply uncute.
1: To talk to your point about Tom Cruise's uh, rakish charms, I do think that because the character as written is kind of deeply unsympathetic, especially early on, he does end up climbing quite a mountain to project a likability. And he does achieve it in a way that I think many actors would not have been up to the task.
0: Listen, Tom Cruise is obviously a problematic person, but you cannot deny that he has a lot of charisma that he puts into play in a lot of films.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about the other thing that I inferred from the flashbacks that I should not have, or that was never made explicit is that I very much assumed that Santiago was gay. And I don't know if that was from, I I mean, I do know if that was from the performer. I very much thought the performer was, uh, a little, uh, uh, I don't know why I'm trying to not sound homophobic. I'm very (laughs) gay, everybody. So I'm, I'm treading super lightly. And then I'm like, like, Santiago sounded gay.
0: They do do the point of having the testimony point out that Dawson had protected Santiago. And while I think that that might have happened for health reasons, I have always kind of taken it as implied that he did it to protect Santiago because Santiago was gay.
1: Well, that was also, I started to wonder if we were going to get a twist that Dawson was involved with Santiago and that that was going to be a complicating factor like when we learned that Santiago needed help and Dawson was the one to help him I was like oh was there going to be a relationship between the two of them that was going to be revealed and so he had like he felt that he had to retaliate harder because he needed to protect himself in that instance and it was going to be like this terrible thing where he ended up killing this man that he loves and felt really bad about it and uh none of that complication came out
0: you've given Aaron Sorkin incredibly too much credit for this.
1: This is out of nowhere, but I just saw it on the page. So I'm going to talk about
0: it. (laughs) That sounds like a great thing for this podcast.
1: There's a lot of amazing acting in this movie. And I want to spend a lot of time talking about Jack Nicholson's final scene. But the thing that got me, because as we've discussed, that whole final scene is bombastic beyond compare. And everyone has a big explosive moment and a fuck you line. And Aaron Sorkin's just writing the shit out of it. Kevin Bacon's character has almost no lines, but has perhaps the best acting moment in that scene, where they cut back to him having realized that he has put all of his faith in Jack Nicholson, who has not earned it, and he looks lost, just bereft, and he takes a pause and collects himself and then delivers his next line as calmly as he can, and it is Fucking brilliant.
0: Here's the thing. I I just rewatched a little bit of that scene today. He doesn't actually speak. I think he just nods. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think he's like really quite shaken. He's actually sort of dissociating.
1: I audibly gasped when they cut back to him.
0: Kevin Bacon does a great job in this movie. First of all, when you're introduced to him, he's got this like very funny little walk. He's got this little like kind of puffed up thing. He does a lot of great little character choices. He always mispronounces Santiago's name as Santiago. He's the only person in the movie who does it. And so it has to be a choice. Obviously you should pronounce people's names the way they're meant to be pronounced, but it is a really nice little character choice that really makes it stand out and kind of gives him something else. Um, I guess maybe the other thing we should talk about is Markinson and his both noble play to help the characters and then ultimately complete lack of helping anyone in any way by killing himself very suddenly.
1: He was a weird character. I, I wasn't sure what... To, like, he, there's a certain amount of plot device to him. Um, and again, which is to say nothing of how absolutely wonderful a performance was. He He's set up as like a weird... Savior, and then he's killed essentially to create tension again.
0: Yeah, because he says he writes a letter to Santiago's parents, and he says, "I've done all that I can do." And I'm like, "Well, not really. Y- you really haven't done all you can do, which is to go be on the stand, and you could disappear again because there is no Markinson. And what he could also do is put the details of the crime into the letter if he does want to kill himself and like not be part of it. You could just put the details just straight down on paper."
1: If he had written them a letter, that would have both given them the information and given them evidence to enter in at the trial.
0: (laughs) Because as it stands, defense exhibits A and B are the two flight records that show that nothing occurred. (laughs) Quick shout out to Josh Molina, who...
1: Yes, I do have an all caps Josh Molina in here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So fun facts about Josh Molina, aside from being a perennial Sorkin actor... He is actually the only person who reprises his role from the original play. He played that role in the stage play as well.
1: That it is insane to me. I mean, he must have, there must have been like three or four small characters he played because the idea that he delivered only those two lines in the Broadway play is beyond me.
0: We should also talk about some of the other bit players. We talked a little bit about Noah Wiley. Aside from Tom Cruise, uh, other problematic actors in this movie include Cuba Gooding Jr., who's in a very small part. It never occurred to me that this must be when Cuba Gooding Jr. and Tom Cruise met for the first time before they'd be together in Jerry Maguire.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, right? Like, it's weird when you think about, like, actors as humans who have, like, met each other before and, like, maybe enjoyed or did not enjoy each other's presence on set. This movie also features perennial Rob Reiner collaborator Christopher Guest.
1: Yes, I totally forgot. I saw him in the opening credits and was thrilled, then kind of forgot that he was coming. And then when he showed up, I was like, great. And he is... He's just always going to be Corky St. Clair to me.
0: So. <laughs> see, for me, he's always going to be the six-fingered man. So, anytime I don't see him in a wig, I'm surprised. I think I think this is <laughs> I think this is Christopher Guest's like actual hair. I'm not sure if I've ever seen that before. As usual, he plays just the creepiest, unsettling man in the entire world.
1: Yeah, it's kind of surprising to me that he's never been cast as a serial killer. There's something about his style of performance that makes it seem like he is very good at being a human being. He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm a person just like you.
0: I would also like to talk about Kevin Pollock, who I also think does really great work in this movie as Sam.
1: I struggled with what we are supposed to be getting from that character.
0: Well, he has no responsibilities here whatsoever.
1: Sort like he's kind of a light comic relief. And I don't mean to downplay Kevin Pollock's work, because you are correct that he is imbuing a lot of warmth and fun without not taking it seriously like he's doing all the right work but that character for me did feel you know he he references himself as being sort of third wheelie and i'm like yeah we haven't really found a justification for you yet have we
0: (laughs) well i mean we kind of talked about them which is that one he's fulfilling the role of mentor which to me cannot fulfill because she's a woman and b It's funny that you don't find a place for him because he's on your team, which is disliking Dawson and Downey. He says at one point, I believe every word of their story, and I think they should go to jail for the rest of their lives. You know, Tom Cruise has a physicality, even though he is a smaller guy, like he has a very like jock kind of physicality to him. And I really think, like, Sam is there to be on the team of the bullied. (laughs) Jack Nicholson has a really crass little moment. Sorry, I guess it's not Jack Nicholson's. It's Aaron Sorkin's. But there's this, when he's giving his final monologue, he's like, who's going to do it, Lieutenant Cowie? Or is it going to be you, Lieutenant Weinberg? And it's probably meant to be a little anti-Semitic. And it's also just sort of this, like, you fucking weenies over there. And I think Sam is there to be the voice of the weenies of the world, which, as a weenie myself, I can appreciate.
1: I mean, uh... I'm pro-weenie.
0: There's also a really nice scene, the bar is in hell, so it's very easy to step over. But there is actually a scene in this movie from 1992 of a man going out for a walk with his daughter with his male friend, and they're just discussing how great his like infant daughter is. In a lot of ways, this movie is Toxic Masculinity, the movie. Jessup and Kendrick and even Markinson and Tom Cruise and Ross and Dawson and Downey like are all exhibiting just incredibly bad maleness and the terrible ramifications that come from that
1: i think that's a great transition into just talking about jack nicholson in the final scene yeah let's do it i just cannot imagine another actor taking this scene when they open the doors and he takes that walk in he has a very specific presence and being and i was terrified of him Just like the instant that door opened, I was like, oh no. Like, I was afraid of that man.
0: Also, in that final monologue, and I rewatched it again today in preparation for this, that bitch does not blink for the entirety of that final monologue. Now, there are a couple of cuts out to Caffey, but it's also this like malevolent charisma, right? Because you also can't look away. What shows you that it is an excellent performance is the fact that it has been parodied so much over the course of the years, and that thing still hits like a sledgehammer. Like I've seen that scene a billion times, and aside from the line you can't handle the truth, which I think has been played so much that it's lost a little bit of its force, but so many parts of that monologue are just a credit to Aaron Sorkin's writing, but... Just a wild credit to Jack Nicholson's delivery.
1: Yeah. And even within the context of the scene, the you can't handle the truth. And again, I've seen it uh, zero times. I mean, I've heard the line, but I've seen the movie zero times. So it did hit for me. One of the
0: reasons why I think the scene really works is that it's a... There's a big build and then there's a drop and then there's the final big build. And Reiner does a really great job. There's so much cacophony of things happening around as Tom Cruise is like starting to get into rhythm. The judge is shouting. Jack Ross is shouting. And then there's this final moment where it all drops out and Tom Cruise gets to like ask the question. The audience has been kept in the dark about kind of just how much Danny has pieced together about what happened to Santiago. We've been given so many clues about the doctored flight records and the clothes and the orders and like all that stuff. And watching Danny put it together is like really great. And I think it finally gets you right onto Danny's team right before he like hits it out of the park. I'm so sorry to like bring softball back into it. But it's just so well directed. There's so much noise and then that noise just drops out so that Danny can deliver his question. And it's so great.
1: Yeah, and that's the other structural thing about this movie that I like. It is in some ways a murder mystery. And I love a murder mystery. It doesn't have the whodunit quality. It's almost more of like a Columbo episode that you start off seeing the crime and then have to piece together exactly how we're going to catch the criminal.
0: I do like that the movie gives us one really solid instance of Danny being not quite ready for prime time. So Jack Nicholson and he have their uh, confrontation Jack Nicholson stands up and is going to get to leave. And then Danny says, sit down. I'm not finished with my examination. And as Jack Nicholson goes to step back, and you're kind of mostly following Jack Nicholson, and then Danny pours himself a glass of water, and his hand is shaking so hard as he guzzles this entire glass of water. It's like 12 ounces of water that he drinks in one single gulp. I like that Rob Reiner takes the moment to, like, let us really see how totally scared Kathy is what happens directly after this incredibly masterful monologue is that Jessup admits to a goddamn crime. And then there's kind of this insane denouement where Kevin Bacon has a come to Jesus moment. Tom Cruise realizes what's happened. There's an exceedingly cute moment where they cut to Dawson and Downey and Dawson realizes what's happened. But Downey just like looks around like he has no like, he has no clue what's happened because his whole character is just very, very dumb. And it's, it's very cute. And then they go to arrest Jack Nicholson. But What's incredible about that scene is that Jack Nicholson has just delivered an incredible amount of fear standing, sitting stock still in the witness booth. And you're you're right. You're totally afraid of him that entire time. And then... He's, when he literally tries to physically attack him, he screams the dumbest thing, which is I'm going to piss in your dead skull. It's amazing the the change that happens in just a couple of minutes in this movie from him being in complete control to him just saying the dumbest insult you can possibly imagine and literally getting held back by two other guys and just getting let off. And he's been completely emasculated, essentially.
1: Character wise, I think what makes more sense is that he would have had an outburst And then immediately reined it all back in rather than the throwing himself physically at someone, which is so wild and inappropriate. If he had just shut down, but given that continued death stare and they like took him away, that would have had like a bigger impact to me.
0: Yeah, I think that's really right. And (laughs) Jessup is presented as being a very smart man. After admitting to the crime, he then continues to admit to the crime for like several minutes. (laughs)
1: I mean, Aaron Sorkin is clearly the Michael Bay of masculine rage.
0: I feel like Michael Bay is the Michael Bay of masculine rage. I think Sorkin's play is successful in that while the good guys win, the defendants don't totally get off. And there's a good explanation for why that is, because like the typical courtroom drama would be like, we won, we are absolved of all charges, except that like there is actually a price to have been paid for this because they killed a guy. They didn't think they were going to kill him, but they certainly intended to torture him, and there should be a punishment for that.
1: Yeah, even though we started off the movie, like I said, feeling like perhaps no one was likable, and we do build to a point where we start to like many of the characters, or at least see the shades of gray, it does retain that ambiguity nicely.
0: As opposed to some of Sorkin's later writing, which I think does a lot of just like, the good guys are good, and the bad guys are bad, and the guys that are the protagonists are the really, really good guys, and they're always really, really good. I think this early work does a good job of saying that while the good guys win, sometimes even people that we like do bad things, and that that needs to have consequences.
1: I mean, for all of the weird quirks, I do think this movie is ultimately, like, very satisfying in the end. It does build to a head. It doesn't maybe stick the landing 100%, but you leave feeling like, wow, that was a good movie.
0: I'm glad. Okay, as, as a as a podcast where I show you movies that I like and you show me movies that you like, I'm glad that you said that you liked the movie. <laughs> um, that's very exciting for me, uh, especially since I like did not like the last movie. All right, well, on that note, any final thoughts on A Few Good Men and One Woman and Two Other Women Who Don't Speak?
1: I liked this movie. I'm glad that I saw it. I, as I said, it was on like a list of eventually movies, and I... Had a great time with this. It takes a lot of boxes for me in terms of, like, good actors doing good acting, murder mystery. Well, that's two boxes. There's probably, oh, like, fun cameos. Love a fun cameo. It had a so it had a lot of the elements of a movie I would like, and that added up to a movie I like. So a thumbs up. Enthusiastics, huzzah. I wouldn't say that this will become a movie that I watch ten more times, but I would watch it another time. Okay.
0: I definitely was happy to see it again. can report that unlike The Sting, which was given a in my household, time was set aside so that we could watch it. And I was asked, when are we going to watch A Few Good Men? So there was a lot of enthusiasm in this household aside from me. I was, in the sense of watching it critically, pretty amazed at how Technically good. Jack Nicholson is in that final monologue, and as always, I wish the woman was written with any semblance of how a woman acts. But you know, we're living in America, so there's only so much we can do, and you know, we're living inside an Aaron Sorkin play, so there's really even less that we can do. So yeah, so that was a few good men. Um, hope you enjoyed it. And what, Chris Kelly, are we going to watch next?
1: So. We are going to watch the 1982 gender-bending comic drama, or maybe it's just a now-right comedy, Tootsie, directed by Sidney Pollack, starring Dustin Hoffman, Terry Garr, Dabney Coleman, Charles Durning, Bill Murray, Sidney Pollack, and in her first Oscar win, Jessica Lange. Oh, seriously? Jessica Lange is in this movie? Jessica Lange gets her first Oscar for Tootsie. Okay, okay, I'm on board. I had a feeling that would be what won you over.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is what won me over. I feel like next week we need to make sure to talk about, at least briefly, my my complete inability to recognize Dustin Hoffman versus a variety (laughs) of other men. (laughs) But I'm sure we can get into all of that next week. Um, For now, please rate and subscribe. We are on Instagram at Replaying Favorites. We are on Twitter at Replaying Faves.
1: So thanks for listening and tune in next week for Tootsie.
0: You could say, I was going to try to make a tune and toots pun, but... We'll just stop here. All right. Goodbye. Bye.
1: (laughs) I know one person who was in a production of it that I did not see. Um, It was from before he and I knew each other. It's not because I'm a bad friend who doesn't go to people's shows.